Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and right across the world as a podcast. My name is Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, big changes at Fairfax with the announcement of new leadership across the company's mastheads. New initiatives to pop the filter bubble, and would it be a current media affairs show without talking Trump? We'll be discussing Trump's war on the media. Joining me in the studio is story editor for ABC's Media Watch, Jason Whitaker. Hi, Jason. Hello. And from Nine's new women's network, Honey, is journalist Jessica Rapana. Hi. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Charlie Lewis from Crikey. Hi, Charlie. Hi there. We're live tweeting and we can put your questions to the panel. Our Twitter handle is ForthEstateAU. Last week, Fairfax announced big changes in the leadership of its mastheads, including the appointment of a new national editor, James Chessel, a new editor for the Sydney Morning Herald, Lisa Davies, and a new editor for The Age, Alex Lavelle. Darren Goodsir, who was reportedly quite a popular figure within Fairfax, also announced that he was stepping down, and with him went the role of editor-in-chief. Chessel, who is currently serving as the Australian Financial Review's European correspondent, took responsibility for federal politics, business and international news across both mastheads, while Davies and Lavelle are responsible for all state coverage. Now, what was not announced was new leaders for WA Today and the Brisbane Times, Fairfax's online publications serving Western Australia and Queensland. The two websites were previously overseen by Goodsir. After being questioned by several journalists, Fairfax later confirmed that those publications will report to the editorial director, Sean Aylmer. But their initial omission perhaps said more. Charlie, do you think that this could be an indication that Fairfax might be looking to close down WA Today and the Brisbane Times in the not-too-distant future? I did a story on this for Crikey, and um, part of that was talking to some of the people at WA Today. That didn't seem like it was, if it was something that was on the cards, it wasn't something that filtered down to them. They didn't seem particularly worried. But certainly it does kind of reinforce that redheaded stepchild reputation that they have, that they're not necessarily among Fairfax's priorities, I suppose. And Charlie, you're from Western Australia, is that right? That's correct. Do the token you... WA guy in the grocery <laughs> office. It's good to have the one. first time I've ever actually added to diversity anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the closure of the WA today would be a big loss for the state? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if I could be wrong here, but I believe WA has the, the highest media concentration of any state in Australia. 
So it would be, it's not, I don't think it's a state that can really, even though it's got a small population, it's not really a state that can afford to have even more of an homogenous approach to the, uh, the issues that face it. So I think it would be a huge loss to, to lose Fairfax out there. I mean, that wouldn't, obviously that doesn't include the, the regional arm of Fairfax, which would still publish out there. I don't believe that they have actually gone to gone anything like the changes that the Metropolitan reporters do. Jason, abolishing the editor-in-chief role effectively removes one level of editorial oversight. Do you think this will affect the quality of Fairfax's journalism? I think any fewer journalists at Fairfax affect the quality, and, and we've seen that over a number of years now. We've seen that over a decade now as those newsrooms have been cut. I would argue, many others would argue, has diminished. But I don't think one editor-in-chief makes a difference. I think the more interesting kind of takeaway from from that, and, and Goodsir left, apparently, according to the reports, because they were going to abolish the editor-in-chief role anyway. It's, I think, worrying for editors in Melbourne and Sydney when you have a national editor coming in, when you have those editors who are apparently now only responsible for local news with a national editor uh, taking charge of you know, federal politics and, and business and, you know, the sort of meaty stuff. Um, I think there's questions around, you know, just how much power those new editors will have in the newsroom and how much, uh, you know, responsibility they will have for, for coverage or whether there will be more of a homogenised, signified approach, which is obviously the fear, particularly for people in Melbourne. A day after announcing the new editors, Fairfax's chief executive, Greg Highwood, also announced another 11 new hires to form what he described as, quote, the next generation publishing model. And this is part of the company's attempt to restructure for a digital first future. But of those 11 hires, only one was a woman, Jessica. What was he thinking? I knew this question was coming for me. I mean, on, on its face, obviously, it's a very interesting um, decision. One of 11 is not great odds. Um, I think it's difficult to say without knowing, you know, exactly who was hired for what role and their background, because it may be that, you know, 10 men were the best qualified people for the job. But again, on its face, I mean, are men better qualified to go into digital? Absolutely not. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. And yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why there's questions around it. I mean, it's worth mentioning, of course, that the previous editor of The Age left the company yeah, due to yeah. a sexual harassment claim. You know, I hate getting into the, you know, it's something less than 50% and, and, and so let's kind of second guess what the decision making was. Ultimately, we don't know. But look, it's not a good look. It's unfortunate. And I think it's also worth mentioning that I, I believe with the editor-in-chief role being abolished, that will mean that the age will never, ever have, well, never has had now and never will have a female editor-in-chief. I could be wrong there, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And yeah, it does seem like a bit of a way, like you could have made a bit of a statement given the circumstances in which um, Forbes left with your next round of hires and maybe that didn't happen. Along with the recent announcement has been the repeated assertion that the newspapers will continue to be printed for the foreseeable future, despite regular <coughs> swirling leaks and rumours to the contrary. Jason, do you believe it? I mean, it, it's only ever a question of timing. Will Fairfax print newspapers forevermore? No, they will not. At some point, Fairfax will stop printing Monday to Friday newspapers and eventually stop printing Saturday and Sunday newspapers as well. That is absolutely and completely inevitable. We probably thought that it would happen sooner. We were certainly hearing a lot of rumours that this year was probably the year when we would lose the Monday to Friday editions of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Management says that won't happen, and you know I, I I think we can probably believe them, particularly when you look at the books. I mean, for all the digital transformation, 
at Fairfax. It's still very difficult to make a buck online, as every publisher knows. And the majority of the revenue for Fairfax is still coming from print advertising. And so while circulation declines and fewer and fewer people actually want these products, uh, it is still where the revenue is being made at Fairfax. And so to cut those additions is to take a big chunk of revenue out of Fairfax. And that presumably the decision has been made that now is not the right time to do that. Jason, is, is your understanding that that's down mainly to the financial review? Are they the paper that actually brings in the most advertising revenue because of the audience that actually buys it? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me if, if that was true. Charlie, Jess, you guys both work for online-only publications. Do you think it's a good idea to keep print running? Jess, I'll start with you. My background is in print. I moved to digital about three or four months ago, so I feel like I guess I have seen both sides. And I think that, I mean... Obviously, there's a natural decline in print that I think no one can overcome, whether it's um, Fairfax, whether it's News Corp, whether it's, you know, The Guardian, whatever. And so I think that uh, it's a difficult time. And I think that probably, as Jason has said, they are going to have to look at that at some point. I mean, you know, the way that life is now, people aren't really going to newspapers Monday to Friday. That's obvious across the board. So I think that they're going to have to address it at some point. But as Jason said, it's still their main source of revenue. So I can see why they're not turning that corner yet. And, and I think the really important point here is, you know, we always have this debate about print and how long will it last and, and at what point will they cut the print. As a, as a reader, as someone who actually cares about this company, I don't care. I don't care whether they print newspapers or not. The actual form doesn't matter to me. What worries me is that when they stop printing newspapers, they will inevitably cut the newsroom inevitably mm. and we've seen numerous examples of this overseas uh we know what will happen here when when the print goes they will say we don't need as many journalists and the cuts to the newsroom will be devastating that's what matters not what form the journalism takes but making those newsrooms sustainable and employing as many journalists as possible but is that true i mean if if they're moving um to digital and, you know, we have paywalls and things like that. Will these journalists not be doing the same job, but they'll be putting out, you know, this information digitally rather than print? So then there is still the need for those jobs. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would definitely agree that there's the need for the jobs. But as I said, most of the revenue is in print. Mm. And so when you take that out, this is a company that has struggled, not uh, unlike other companies, that have struggled to make money online. They haven't been geared around digital subscriptions. They haven't had the success of a New York Times, for example, that is growing its digital subscriptions significantly. There isn't a lot of growth there. And if anything, digital advertising is in decline rather than growing. So the cut to the newsroom will, will be inevitable and, and really devastating. Maybe what, what these this restructuring this week is sort of signposting is that they are looking to focus on that, you know, by um, obviously appointing a new digital team and sort of focusing on really pushing that digital edge for that to like take care of that you know whether it's this year next year several years yeah well i think considering the uh the rounds of cuts we've seen already from fairfax's newsroom it's hard to imagine how that could speed up anymore but uh jason you did you did mention digital advertising and and the revenue streams for fairfax and today we've seen some interesting news with greg highwood confirming the rumors about splitting out domain into a separate company to maximize value in what is in fact the most lucrative part of the fairfax business but recent reports also saw a 16 percent decline in advertising revenue for metro publishing so do you think that this move to split out domain might in fact be the beginning of a cut and run from the newspapers which are really struggling to stay afloat? 
Yeah, I think the answer to that is is yes. It's, it's smart by Fairfax in that it will extract more value from domain. The market will get a better look at it, will price it in a better way. The revenue will still largely go into Fairfax. Fairfax is looking at taking still 60-70% of this company. So it's it makes a lot of business sense. The problem is that it, I would argue, absolutely makes the traditional newsrooms at Fairfax more vulnerable. When you take out what is by far and away the biggest revenue earner for the company, these newspapers, which are which are barely profitable, look pretty sick in comparison. Um, we've already seen reports today that Channel 9, for example, are sniffing around um, in terms of buying these newspapers again on the proviso, of course, that, that it is a low-cost model, that they continue to drive costs out of the business. That's bad news for those papers. It's bad news for the newsrooms. And I think we only have to look at, say, Yahoo 7's recent fine with, for contempt of court to see what that can actually do to, to the quality of the journalism. It, it, when, you, when you take away, the, when you cut down those news, the oversight, the editorial roles, you um, invariably lead to mistakes like the one we saw being handed down on Friday. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate and you're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Charlie Lewis, Jason Whitaker, and Jessica Rapana. BuzzFeed recently launched a new feature that aims to address the problem of the filter bubble. For those not familiar with the term, the filter bubble refers to the way our Facebook feeds and Google search profiles present a version of reality that is palatable to our perspective and reinforces our beliefs. BuzzFeed will now add a little box at the bottom of its most shared articles that will pull in what people are saying about the piece on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, and elsewhere on the web. They've described it as a response to the way that often the same story will have two or three distinct and siloed conversations taking place around it on social media. Introducing the new feature in a post called Helping You See Outside Your Bubble, BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief, Ben Smith, said, quote, Our goal is to give readers a sense of these conversations around an article and to add a kind of transparency that has been lost in the rise of social media-driven filter bubbles. We view it in part as a way to amplify the work of BuzzFeed news reporters and to add for readers a sense of the context in which news lives now. Charlie, do you think it's a good idea? Um, the so there's, there's there's two versions of this, and there's the, the Guardian one where they expose you to conservative writers on certain topics, and then the um, BuzzFeed one, which is the comments section. Um, I I sort of I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it's going to have a huge impact. I mean, I, especially the the BuzzFeed version because I feel like if a, a forceful and intelligent thoughtful conservative writer may give me pause on something that I thought I understood. But I'm, I'm, it's very, very rare that I read comment from someone that makes, the, you know, a, a Twitter comment or, um, or a comment on an article that really makes me reassess the value of a certain story. Uh, I think possibly, and I think also, I mean, with the, with the Guardian version of it, I feel like it sort of feels like a very symbolic gesture, a kind of thing that will play well with their audience. But again, I don't know if people will actually take advantage of it or whether it will actually change the conversation. Yeah. So, so Jason, I, uh, let me follow up and say, do you think that, that this is, that it would be better instead for them to make these token nods to conservative opinions? Should they rather be trying to incorporate more conservative viewpoints in, in their actual news coverage? Uh, I mean, they should probably do both. Um, I th- look, I think it's a it's an interesting experiment, um, and you know, BuzzFeed has been terrific in in doing things that are a bit unique and original, and and breaking some rules. And I think we need more of that. So, you know, does it does it make a difference? 
probably not, but it's a nice experiment, and why not give it a go? Um, but look, I do. I it, yeah, I don't think it'll do any harm. That, that's no, good. absolutely. And and but 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 I do think it kind of plays into this, you know, this idea that that everything is filtered, that everything is 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 either you know this is a left story or a right story. It's here's a left wing person commenting and a right wing person commenting. It kind of entrenches the partisanship rather than actually getting back to you know what I what I would like as as a working journalist is just to have some fact-based journalism to to not have a left and a right but to actually say well these are facts these are these are just actually facts and and we don't need the kind of left or right interpretation of but is that avoidable do you think I mean is it is 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 the if at the very least is the perception that there that something is left wing or right wing avoidable in the audience can you ever however well researched or however well argued it is no of course it's not avoidable and and that's the reality in which we live and and it was a kind of a utopian thing to say but (laughs) you know i i just don't i don't like the idea of of kind of entrenching the partisanship further um i I agree i think yeah i agree i think i think it does sort of play into the idea that there is no objective truth behind any of this, that it's just a slant on an event that one person would prefer to have, um, that it's just it's just the take on... I don't know, for example, I feel like you don't have to watch Q&A anymore. You can just read The Australian on it for whatever the right-wing people think, and you can read BuzzFeed on it for whatever the left-wing perspective on it is. Right. And maybe that's not necessarily good for us as news consumers. Right. And, and you know, t- time is short, right? I mean, I, I if when it comes to reading news, I don't want to have to read, you know, the lefty progressives at BuzzFeed and the and the right-wing um, people at, at Breitbart uh, I'd rather just read the New York Times, which does its best, and you know we can argue it has a liberal bias, but but does its best to actually, uh, you know, present articles in a in a fair and reasonable and and unbiased way. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I would rather consume my news like that rather than have to watch Fox News and MSNBC. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's agree that it is not avoidable that there are pieces of media that are more left leaning and other pieces that are more right leaning, and that our filter bubbles will sort those according to our preferences. Jessica, is is the filter bubble really a problem? What happens if we just all stay in our own happy online worlds? Uh, it's a really hard question. There. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, like the boys said, it's an interesting experiment because it really does put out in the open that you know we are whatever sort of side we we prefer. We read that and we engross ourselves in that, and we sort of turn a blind eye to the other side. And so I think that anything that is offering up different views and diversity has got to be good. You know, and and like it says um, in BuzzFeed and in Guardian when they're putting forward these ideas that you don't have to agree with them, but by reading these views, you can even strengthen your own arguments or strengthen your own views just by exposing yourself to a wider context. So I think that the answer is um, that it is a good thing to, and I, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to play devil's advocate, but I don't mind this idea, however idealistic it is, because I think that if we're, you know, receiving a, a wider viewpoint, then it's got to be a good thing. Well, let me follow up on that. How much do you think that The Guardian and BuzzFeed really care about uh, broadening their readers' horizon? In fact, isn't it more in their interest that they continue to provide a, a reader with what they actually want? And I wonder, do you think that maybe the inspiration behind this is, in fact, nothing to do with, with that holistic idea of wanting to broaden a horizon, but instead is just uh, these news organisations mainstream news organizations trying to make up for the beating that they copped after the US election for having really missed the rise of, of the right? 
I think that that's a really interesting um, idea. I mean, obviously, we've never really seen the media under such scrutiny as this, as it currently is with the US election and everything and that's going on there now as well. So I think that media organisations are on their toes more it would be you know ridiculous to say that they're not um and so i guess is this a nod to saying you know look how objective we are maybe is it you know an effort to give readers more context and and more opinions maybe it's it's difficult to say and i guess it's, it's not out of the question that it can be both it can be both a um mm. a noble gesture and also a, a not cynical but practical calculation and i think it does play well with the audiences of both of those publications to make them feel that they are better informed because they read that publication. Um, but then that's what you're supposed to do as a news organization. So I think it can probably be both. I think another interesting point about this is that it doesn't seem to me that the conservative, really big conservative publications, say like Breitbart, are really interested in <laughs> understanding the liberal news media point of view. Or um... I, just, I just want to say it totally worries me that we're we're equating Breitbart with with BuzzFeed. I'm, I'm, I'm whatever criticisms you want to level at BuzzFeed. I don't think you could say that they're quite the same kind. It, it, it worries me that we're now having the conversation in those terms. Um, but no, you're, you're quite right. But I suppose also, I mean, it, it, it's the same argument that a lot of people use about, say, this is a bit of a left turn, I apologize, but like, say, inaction on climate change. They say, well, there's no point in Australia doing anything until China does or until India does. It, it, maybe, that, maybe that's not a good enough reason not to do it. All right. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're listening to Fourth Estate and you're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Charlie Lewis from Crikey, Jason Whitaker from ABC's Media Watch and Jessica Rapana from Nine Honey. US President Donald Trump has proclaimed a war on the media. He's described the press as his opposition party, reporters as the most dishonest human beings on earth, and in a recent tweet he described some of the biggest news organisations in America as the enemy of the American people. Jess, how dangerous is Trump's self-proclaimed war with the media? Uh, I just I find this whole thing so fascinating. I think that um, the short answer is it is dangerous. I mean, any attempt to undermine the media is a risk. It's always sort of stood, um, you know, whether idealistically or not, as the fourth estate, as that check on the balance of power of government. And so I think, you know, when you have a president, again, which is unprecedented, seeking to discredit media in the way that Trump has, it's dangerous. And I mean, there were reports that said people that actually believe the media, what they're putting out, has dropped significantly um, from, I think it was 70% around Watergate to about 30% now. And that is unbelievable. So I think that, you know, there is a risk um, if people aren't believing that. I mean, it it does leave room for someone like Trump or or another leader to come in um, and put out their views unfiltered. And thank you, Jess. You just get the prize for saying the name of the show in the show. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, let let me follow on with what you just said, because it's true that wherever possible, Trump does actually prefer talking over the media and directly to the American people or indeed the world wherever he can. So obviously his Twitter feed reflects that. He tries to broadcast all his press conferences and briefings directly on social media. Jason, do you think that uh, this is going to keep working for him or do you think that this might actually eventually be his undoing? No, I think it's working for him and it'll probably continue to work for him. And and frankly, um, 
I love it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets up every morning and, and checks Trump's Twitter feed. I mean, we, you know, if, if, if Barack Obama was providing the same level of insight into what he was up to in the White House every day when he was in office, we would have thought that was fantastic. We would have thought how incredible that as citizens of the United States or citizens of the world that we actually have this incredibly intimate insight into what is happening, meetings he's in, people he's seeing, what he really thinks about things. So I like the idea. Um, and and Trump is smarter than most in terms of grappling with social media and, and um, using it to his great advantage. So, you know, good luck to him. And I think it will continue to work. But that's kind of separate to this this kind of concerted campaign to undermine the fourth estate, to to fuel uh, distrust in what I would argue is a pretty important institution. The media, through no fault but our own, has had a pretty awful reputation. You know, there's almost no reputation there to protect, and and yet he continues to undermine it. And that's that's the real danger. It's it's almost less about what is true and not true and more about the way that he is fueling his fan base to simply not believe anything that they read anywhere. And, and that's hugely concerning. Charlie, does the media think that it's at war with Trump or is this a bit of a one-sided war? That's a that's a really interesting question. I hadn't. I, I mean, I would say probably on the on the face of it, you, you sort of have to say yes because it does seem. And I'm I'm no admirer of Trump or his policies, but it does seem like I don't have all the reporting of, of Trump this way at all. I think almost ninety percent of it would be legitimate interrogation of his policies, choices, and 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 things like that. But it does seem like there are uncritical acceptance of, of anything that paints Trump in a bad light. And I think, yeah, just going back to what you were saying before, I know you mentioned, say, the level of trust in the media when Watergate happened as opposed to now. And I think, I mean, Richard Nixon was also incredibly conspiratorial and thin-skinned and, and hated elite. But obviously that platform or that, that way of viewing the world just hadn't, couldn't take the same kind of hold on people as it does now because people don't trust the media nearly as much. It's a new level. You know, John McCain came out last week and said, well, I hate the media. I've always hated the media. I, you know, wish that the media didn't exist. But clearly it has to. Clearly it's important. Clearly it's it's vital to what we do as politicians and, and how democracy works. You You can hate it and hate the coverage and still respect it and still play with it because it's it's so important to your ability to to get stuff done and 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 to put a public face on on what you're trying to do but jason if people are losing trust and and that's right it's that recent gallup poll was 33 percent of americans saying that they have a good amount of trust in the media so two-thirds of the country's saying they don't trust the media we're seeing the rise of partisan media i think is what you'd call it things like breitbart but let's call it partisan media do you think that is the end of more objective media and perhaps we'll be moving to a media landscape that is completely driven by agendas i fear that however the new york times has had the most stunning increase in its subscriptions since trump that it has ever seen the Washington Post has had an incredible uptick in subscriptions. Time Magazine, Slate, there's a whole list of companies that are coming out and saying, this is fantastic for us. People are flocking to us in record numbers because we're considered uh, media that you can trust. 
um, and and how important is that in these days? So yes, I absolutely fear that, but at the same time, I, it's it's kind of encouraging to see the media that that is good that tries to do a good job that that is is wants to report on trump in a in a fair way they are having success right now and i I think that is encouraging all right we're running short on time but i've got one final question for you all oscar wilde said that there is only one thing that's worse than being talked about and that's not being talked about do you think trump might actually be a good thing for news media jess I think that Trump is challenging the media and I think that that can only be a good thing. And then I guess there's that risk of boy cried wolf that when he does do something, I mean, he's outrageous on his own is what I'm trying to say. So, and he loves the headline. So I think this is a real challenge for the media to, you know, do their job as objectively as possible so that, as we say, the trust has increased. Charlie, we'll throw to you. Yeah, I mean, I think probably I would just, echo that. I think it's really important that there isn't a sense of protest fatigue that builds up around Trump and the, the media makes sure. And I think we can probably all agree that something very major and catastrophic may well be on its way as a result of the, or in, within the Trump administration. And we've got to make sure that when that does happen, that that blow lands and that it actually does resonate with people and it's not just lost in the noise of all the outrage that he attracts, as you say, by, by just being him. Jason, final words? Yeah, look, I think, it, I think it could be good for the reasons that I just said and, and we've seen in subscriptions that from a business perspective, maybe this is good news. But as, as you said, Jess, the challenge is, is enormous. The, the times call for the most fearless reporting. We, we have to stand firm. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Charlie Lewis. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Jason Whitaker from ABC Media Watch. Pleasure. And Jessica Rapana from Nine Honey. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast on The Money's Up Next. My name is Olivia, and you can catch us at the same time next week. Mm-hmm.